Well, one of the most uh, iconic images from the presidency of George W. Bush was the toppling of a statue in the Middle East. And uh, you probably know the, the statue that I'm referring to. It was a statue of Saddam Hussein defeated by American troops in 2003. And then later, a couple years later, he was tried and executed by the Iraqi people, the newly constituted Iraqi government. At the time of Hussein's capture in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, this image of a defeated dictator was widely seen both as a victory for the American Republic and uh, at the time a moment of liberation for the Iraqi people. But since that time, the American invasion of Iraq has become something of a black stain on the present's legacy. Indeed, on America's international reputation. President Bush justified the war in Iraq on the premise of weapons of mass destruction. Weapons that were never actually found or used in the military campaign. And so today, many wonder what it was that motivated President Bush to declare war in Iraq. Was it indeed a concern for America's national security? Was it something else? We're not, we don't know. Was it a desire to settle old scores with the enemy of his father. You know, this morning as we open God's Word, as we continue along in our study in the book of Kings, we're going to encounter a passage that raises similar questions with regard to King David and his son Solomon. In our text this morning, we're going to be looking at David's final charge to his son. Specifically, we're going to consider David's instruction that Solomon settle accounts with some old enemies. Was this justice on the part of the king? Or was this an instance of personal vengeance and retaliation? Let's read God's word and find out. 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2, I remind you as I read that this is God's inspired and inerrant word. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. The Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in a time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist, and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite. Let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. There is also with you Shimei the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day I went from Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. You shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. 
Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father. His kingdom was firmly established. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. She said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, speak. He said, you know the kingdom was mine, that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well. I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. She said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. The king said to her, make your request, my mother. I will not refuse you. She said, let let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father and has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he struck him down and he died. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anoth, your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, though he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled the tent of the Lord, behold, he's beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go and strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus says Joab, and he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me in my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner, commander of the armies of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house, for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went up and struck him down and put him to death. He was buried in his own house in the wilderness. 
The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in the place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for sure that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good, my lord. The the king has said, So will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. But it happened at the end of three years, two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei arose, saddled the donkey, and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain on the day you go out and go to any place whatever you shall die. And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandments with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your your heart all the harm you did to David my father, so the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down. He died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon, the word of the Lord. As we consider the chapter that we've just read in God's Word, David's final charge, David's final commission to his son Solomon, we're going to consider the message of the text in two parts. First of all, in the first few verses, David's concern for his son's spirituality. Secondly, David's concern for Israel's national security. And so that's where we're heading this morning with the help of our God. David's twofold concern for the nation of Israel in the time following his departure. As we discovered in our sermon last time, the book of Kings opens with a portrait of David in the final months of his life. This is a a king whose best years are now behind him. This is a, a king who is in decline. He's in decline physically, and it seems that in some ways he's in decline spiritually. King David has reached the end of his reign, and having narrowly avoided a revolution at the hands of his son Adonijah, David acted decisively to put down the rebellion. He has taken steps to ensure a peaceful transition of power. And now the king is Solomon. This is the king that God had chosen for Israel. God anointed Solomon as David's successor. The people of Israel consented to be ruled by Solomon in David's place. And now in chapter 2, we see David's final effort to prepare his son Solomon to be a righteous king, to ensure the nation will unite behind his leadership and that they will support him without any further division or civil unrest. In chapter 1 of 1 Kings, David had fumbled the ball. He had dropped the ball. But now in chapter 2, David is recovering as he heads towards the goalpost. And he wants to faithfully complete the assignment that God had given him as the king. 1 Kings 2 contains the final words of a father to a son and is also the counsel of an experienced king to a political novice. 
And as David lays upon his deathbed, never to get off of it again, there are two subjects that occupy his mind and his thought. First of all, the spiritual condition of his son. Secondly, the nation's security under the leadership of his son. Now considering, first of all, the spiritual condition of Solomon, let's look at the words of David in verse 2. David says there, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Love that. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways, keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish His word He spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 2, the, the fact that David accepted his own mortality. The fact that as his life is drawing to a close, David knows that death is on the way. Now this may seem rather obvious on the surface of things. It's important to note, I think, David accepted the fact of his impending death. Death David knew and understood is an unavoidable part of life in a fallen and sinful world. In the Bible, we read it is appointed unto man once to die. David accepts his finitude. He acknowledges that the wages of sin is death. Furthermore, it is significant that at the very end of his life, David is not selfishly thinking of himself, but he is thinking rather about the welfare of his son Solomon and about the welfare of the nation as a whole. Now later on in the book of Kings, we're going to meet another elderly king by the name of Hezekiah. He was a relatively good and godly king, but at the end of his life, Hezekiah fails. And at the end of his life, Hezekiah can think about nothing except himself and his own welfare and the welfare of his own generation. And Hezekiah says, in effect, well, as long as I die in peace, as long as I live and die in peace, everything's okay. After I I die, they can worry about that. As long as I die in peace, everything's fine. But here in David, we see a man who cares about the next generation. He, He cares about the kingdom that his children and that his grandchildren are going to inherit. It's a big difference. Hezekiah approaches the end of his life. His main concern is with himself. David's main concern is with the interests of the next generation. What kind of kingdom are my sons going to inherit? What kind of society are my children and my grandchildren going to inherit? Is Solomon poised to succeed in office or is he poised to struggle in his new role as the king? So David is at the end of the road, but he is not self-absorbed. There's an important lesson here, I believe, for those of you who are in your senior years. And you've run the race, and the finish line is now in sight. As you elderly saints look around at the state of this nation, you elderly saints, you look around at the trajectory of our culture, you look around at the world that we are presently living in, What's your concern? 
Are you hoping and praying that you will be able to die in relative security before, before the whole thing falls apart? As long as I live out my days in peace and security, as long as I don't have to pay for the national debt, doesn't matter. You're just looking to live and to die in peace before it collapses. Are you concerned about the world you will leave behind? Are you a forward-thinking person? Are you concerned with the advancement of God's kingdom? Are you the kind of person that doesn't care what will happen? You don't care what will happen beyond, beyond, beyond your own four score and ten. King David was far from perfect, but at the end of his life, here's a man who has his priorities straight. He cares about the world he's leaving behind. He cares about the advancement of the kingdom of God on the earth. And so rather than being consumed with himself, David's main concern at the hour of his death is with the welfare of his nation, with the stability of the political leadership of the nation, the spiritual leadership of the nation. He is thinking about others. He is thinking about the future society that he himself will not live to see. There's something commendable in that. And as David thinks about the future of his kingdom, the future of society, the first thing that dominates his mind, he's thinking to himself, will my son step up to the plate? Will my son step up? Will he develop into a man of God? You know, as I studied the text this week, I was particularly drawn to the words of David in verse 2. This is the final challenge that he gave to his son Solomon. It, it's, it's glorious. Words of a father to a son. Be strong, son. Show yourself a man. Isn't that awesome? Be strong. Show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God. Man, wouldn't you love to hear that from your dad? These words of wisdom are not only words from one king to another king, they capture the heart of a father for his son. And these are words that every single man in this room today should take to heart as we consider God's will for our lives and for the future of our own children. We are living in a culture today that in many ways... We see this all around us, a culture that hates manhood. This is a culture that hates manhood, that denigrates manhood and masculinity. And you don't have to look far to find it. You look at pop culture, the movies, the TV, the entertainment. Men are the brunt of jokes. Men are the punchline in the joke. They're portrayed as being lazy and stupid. That is the cultural portrayal of men and the expectation that is placed upon you men that you will turn out to be lazy and stupid and sexually immoral. We hear often today this catchphrase, toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. The men, they need to get in touch with their soft side. They, they need to get in touch with their feminine side. The Bible is clear. God created men and women different. Amen? He didn't make us the same. He made us differently. He, he designed us for different roles, different purposes in society. But what does modern culture want to do? Modern culture hates 
God's design in every way. Hate it for the family, hate God's design for gender, hate God's design for masculinity and for femininity. They want to overthrow God's design for the two sexes. They want to eliminate every difference between male and female. It is a demonic program. And we see it everywhere in our culture today. And so what do we see in culture today? We have a culture where women are encouraged to act like men and where men are encouraged to act like women to the point we will mutilate our bodies and the taxpayer will pay for it to mutilate bodies so that you can be whatever you want to be. You can violate and rebel against God's design. And sadly, many men in our culture today are willing to play the role now expected to lay aside a biblical understanding of manhood, masculinity, to embrace instead this emaciated caricature of what it really means to be a man. Why do you think people flock to someone like Jordan Peterson and his lectures? Because people are looking for male role models today. We've forgotten what it means to be a man. Well, here in David's final admonition to his son, there is a very helpful reminder. What does God expect of men? What has God designed men to be in this world? David tells Solomon, be strong, son. Show yourself a man. Be a man. We know, we know this. God in his wisdom, this shouldn't be an offensive thing to say, but it is, sadly, God in his wisdom created men with greater physical strength. This is why men and women shouldn't be competing in the same sporting events and why men should not be competing in women's sports. God in his wisdom created men with greater physical strength. He created men with a natural inclination to lead, to protect, to provide, to be courageous, to act in courageous faith. It is the role of the man to protect his wife and his family. It is the role of the man to lead his family in the ways of the Lord. It is the role of the man to provide for the physical and spiritual and emotional needs of his family. The man is the pastor of his home, the shepherd of his home. Men are designed by God to work for a living. Our bodies show that. We are designed to work for a living. We are to be the primary breadwinner of the family. Primary provider of the family. This is a role being reversed today. When men accept a passive role in the family unit and when men allow their wives to be the primary provider and the primary spiritual leader of the home. It is an abdication of manhood. It's an abdication of responsibility. That shouldn't be in any way offensive, but that is... So countercultural to say today. Listen to me, young men. Men are designed by God to grow up. <laughs> to grow up. To venture out into the world with courageous faith. You are not designed, young men, to stay in your parents' basement playing video games, eating your parents' food, taking advantage of your mother's hospitality, refusing to work, and wasting your youth. And there are many young men in our world today, they don't start to live 
on their own until they're 30 years old or older. And so, brothers, I would encourage you, allow the words of David to ring in your ears this morning to remind you what God designed you to be. Be strong. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Be a real man in a culture that has forgotten what that means. Don't allow the world to force you into its distorted mold. Don't allow the world to overthrow God's design for your life. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is going to say a similar word to the men of Corinth because they were not taking their God-given responsibilities seriously. And Paul says to the men in the church of Corinth, be watchful men, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Act like men. Be a man. Be strong. So David instructs his son, be strong, show yourself a man. He goes on to describe, what does it look like to be a man after God's own heart? He, te- he tells us what it means. He says that we show ourselves to be strong and courageous men as we submit to the authority of God, the Creator, and as we keep the commandments that He's given us in His Word and His law. A few years ago, Michael Ray wrote a country song about manhood. It was entitled, Real Men Love Jesus. Remember that song? Real Men Love Jesus. It didn't last very long on the radio, but I bought the bumper sticker, and it's still on the tailgate of my truck as a reminder to me and other men behind me about God's design for our lives. Real men love Jesus. Real men love Him. Real men have lives centered around the purposes of His kingdom and righteousness. That's what it means to be a strong and godly man. You walk in the ways of the Lord. You keep His statutes, His rules, His testimonies. You are a man of the Word. And this was the most pressing concern on David's heart as he prepares to die. He wants to instill in his son Solomon, what does it look like, Solomon, for you to be a man? What does it mean? Christian dads, I want to encourage you this morning, as I encourage myself, don't wait until you're on your deathbed to impress these values upon your sons. Dads, we we must model biblical manhood before our families. We must model it before them. They must see in our lives what it means to be a strong, courageous, godly man. And by the way, that's not only helpful for our sons. Dads, we need to set the the bar very high for our daughters. Why? Do you want your daughter to marry a weak, passive man who will not provide for her? Who will not protect her? who will not fulfill his spiritual duties in the home, who will not shepherd her or your grandchildren. Brothers, if you want your daughter to marry a strong, godly provider, protector, who loves them as Christ loved the church, you have to set the bar high. You have to be that kind of man. Be the kind of man that you want your daughter to marry one day. Be the kind of man that you want to raise your grandchildren one day. David speaks as a father to a son. It's marvelous. But he speaks also as Israel's new king. He is instilling here in Solomon an understanding what God expects from rulers and civil magistrates. 
Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the law of God, Deuteronomy 17. We discovered there kings of Israel were to copy God's law by hand. They were to study the word of God on a daily basis. Now, friends, I don't know if you've heard this. I hear it quite frequently today. People who say, Christians who say, well, you know, we can't hold our non-believing politicians accountable to biblical values. We can't expect that, can we? We we don't live in a Christian country. Here's the truth about it. The truth is, God holds all kings and all magistrates accountable to the dictates of his word. And not just the magistrates and the kings of ancient Israel, but all earthly rulers of all times in all places. It's the reason why God brought judgment upon pagan nations that disregarded the precepts of his moral law. It is why Psalm chapter 2 instructs kings and rulers of the earth, kiss the son. In other words, submit to the rightful rule and authority of your God. And so here on his deathbed, David is not only thinking about Solomon's personal piety, he is thinking about Solomon's office. Solomon's office as the king of Israel. You'll notice verse 4, David specifically appeals to the covenant that God had made with him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's promise that he would establish David's house and David's lineage forever. You know, David never forgot about God's promise to him. But notice in verse 4 that David repeats the covenant promise in conditional terms. It's a very interesting thing to notice here. He, he repeats it in conditional terms as a warning and as a reminder to his son of what will happen if Solomon departs from the ways of God. And so in verse 4, we read these words of encouragement to the new king. David says, if your sons, notice the if, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. God's original covenant with David was unconditional in one important sense. Here in verse 4, we discover it was conditional in another sense. God's blessing upon the nation of Israel was conditioned upon the faithful leadership of their kings. Understand this, friends, and I hope you realize this, nations do not spontaneously become righteous. Do you understand that? You say, well, they just automatically become righteous. Or a righteous nation just automatically stays righteous. Do you believe that? In, in science, I have a, a degree in science, we learned about entropy, <laughs> increasing disorder, and it's the, sa- the same is true spiritually. You don't go from, from spiritual disorder to spiritual order, naturally. It goes the opposite way. Nations do not spontaneously retain their righteousness when the leadership becomes wicked. Do you believe that nations spontaneously become free? I hear people say this all the time. We live in this free nation called Canada. We need to appreciate the freedom that we have here compared to other nations. Amen. Why is this nation free? Have you ever asked that question? Why we live in such liberty? Why this is such a wonderful country to live? Did just spontaneously become that way? It's because this nation was founded on the Bible. 
That's why we live in freedom. And do you think that this nation will spontaneously retain its freedom if we throw the Bible out? It will not. Do not delude yourself into thinking that a nation, even a great nation such as Canada, will remain glorious and free when the leadership of the nation throws the word of God into the garbage heap and does whatever is right in their own eyes. This is not rocket science. This is common sense. Common sense. And David recognized at the time of his death, Ungodly kings who forsake the word of God bring God's discipline upon a nation. They bring God's wrath upon a nation. Indeed, we're going to see how David's warning here to Solomon will later come to pass in the history of Israel and in the life of his own son who did not follow his father's advice. What a tragedy. We're going to see it in weeks to come. David wanted descendants to govern the nation as men after God's own heart. Most of them didn't listen to David. And eventually, as we know, the nation of Israel was brought into severe judgment. The ten northern tribes were basically decimated and destroyed. And the southern tribes, Judah, Benjamin, Levi, they ended up in 70 years of Babylonian exile. Israel was slow to learn And by the way, folks, the same warning applies more generally to modern nations such as this one. If our leaders continue to mock our God, if they continue to depart from the precepts of God's word and law, if they continue to plunge the nation headlong into wickedness and sin, we will see God's judgment come down upon our own heads. You better believe it. And so just as David was concerned about the spiritual status of Israel's readers, Rulers, we Christians ought to be very concerned about the spiritual welfare of the leaders God has placed over us. We must not be indifferent to the spiritual condition of the magistrate. We must not say, as so many Christians do in these days, that, oh, well, we just can't expect non Christians to submit to the Bible. Can you imagine if you said that in your own home about your own children? Well, you know, my children aren't Christians, so I can't expect them to submit to the precepts of God's Word. It's nonsense. Nonsense. The Bible is crystal clear. God holds all men accountable to the precepts of his word and law. No one gets a free pass. His wrath will fall upon nations and leaders that refuse to kiss the Son and to to do homage to him. And so whether or not our leaders profess faith in Christ, we can and we should and we must hold them accountable to the precepts of God's word. Why do we do that? What's the biblical basis for that? The kingship of Christ. He is king over all. He's not just king over this. He's king over everything. He's the ruler of everything. There's nothing that is not under his sovereign control. And one day, every magistrate, in fact, every human being without exception, will fall down at the feet of this king. Every one of us. David understood the security of a nation depends upon the spiritual fidelity of its leadership. That is the point of the first four verses. They're actually verses about national security. The whole text is about national security. If the leaders depart from God, the security of the nation is put in jeopardy. 
God blesses righteous nations. God pours out wrath upon wicked nations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But from the spiritual condition of Solomon, David turns in verses 5 to 9 to give his, his son an intelligence briefing. This is an intelligence briefing for the new king. This is a list of men who David considers to be a threat to the monarchy and to the nation as a whole. And although David's charge to Solomon in the first four verses are seen to be a sign of his righteousness, what follows in the rest of the chapter has tended to cast a dark shadow over David's character. And we read this chapter, and it it tends to cast a shadow. It tends to call David's motive and his morality into question. And so it's rather tempting, I think, to read this chapter in the worst possible moral light, to see this chapter as David's personal vendetta. This is David the gangster, settling old scores. And uh, perhaps some of you in this room have seen the Godfather trilogy. You may be tempted to draw a parallel between David's character here in this chapter and that Famous scene in the movie where Michael Corleone is standing in church at the baptism of his niece and he orders a hit on all of his enemies and they're all taken out at once. There are some who believe that David ended his life in the manner of a bloodthirsty gangster. That his motives here are far from being righteous. And I've got to admit, this has always been a chapter that has raised some of these questions in my mind. What was David's motive here? What was, what was in his mind? What was in his heart as he spoke these words? They're actually some of the same issues that come into my mind when, when I think about the last war in Iraq, the way that Saddam's regime was brought to an end. But while we may be tempted to think the worst about King David, we may be tempted to view this as a blot on his legacy. After studying the text, I am persuaded that David's motives here were good and right. I believe his motives are good and right. I have come to the conclusion David was not seeking after personal retribution. He was seeking after the welfare and the security of the kingdom that his son was about to inherit. King David, you see, was not a political novice. He knew from his own experience as Israel's king, some men threaten the security and the solidarity of the nation if they are left to their own devices. And what we discover as we examine David's intelligent briefing is that each one of these men was dangerous. These men were a live threat to Israel's national security and the ongoing stability of Solomon's rule and reign. And so verse 5, David tells Solomon, the first gentleman that you're going to need to deal with is Joab. You're going to have to deal with this guy. You're going to have to bring this man to justice for some of the murderous, unlawful things he's done. Now it would be nice this morning if we had more time and we could look in greater detail at Joab. (laughs) If you want to know Joab, read uh, the book of 2 Samuel. David had a complex relationship with Joab. Joab was the commander of the army. He was the highest ranking military officer in David's administration. And Joab was, for the most part, a very loyal servant of David. He was a very effective officer in a time of war. When Absalom rebelled against David and attempted to spark a revolution, who remained faithful to David? Joab did. 
Joab was there with him. Joab departed with David and his company from the city, following David into exile. If David was ever in a tight spot, if David needed to deal with a sticky situation, who could he call? Joab was there. He was the man for the job. And David knew that this, this guy, Joab, he would get the job done. He didn't mind getting his hands a little bit dirty. Not everything was bad about Joab. The problem with Joab was that Joab didn't know how to conduct himself in a time of peace. He was great in wartime, but he didn't know how to act in a time of peace. He would not easily give up his grip and power. You read about Joab, you realize one of the problems with this man was his temper. He had an awful temper. He had a long track record of overstepping the limits of his rightful authority. It was Joab who killed David's treasonous son Absalom, even though the king didn't give the order. And in two other situations where David wanted to resolve conflict, he wanted to unite a divided nation, Joab took it upon himself to inflame division among the tribes. Joab murders Abner in cold-blooded revenge. This was By the way, a military rival of David, he was a supporter of King Saul. This man, Abner, had killed Joab's own brother. He was running after the chariot, and it says that that that, uh, Abner said, quit chasing me or you're going to regret it. And then he killed him with the blunt end of his spear. And so Joab murders Abner, not in a time of war, but in a time of peace. This is his own family vendetta. And Joab does more than that. He murders another official named Amasa. This is another military officer. And David viewed Amasa as a way to unite and to broker peace among the divided tribes. David was no dummy politically. (laughs) He, He was not a dumb man. And he was humble enough to lay aside personal insults for the good of the nation as a whole. Joab, however, would not turn the other cheek. He would never overlook a wrong. He was a a great asset to the king in a time of war, but he was a dangerous liability in a time of peace. And in his zeal for personal vengeance, Joab had committed murder twice and had broken God's law. And David knew about what Joab had done. David understood better than anyone, Joab is a loose cannon. This guy is, is just a disaster waiting to happen. And of course, the other problem leaving Joab alive was that Joab had thrown his political weight behind Adonijah instead of behind Solomon. And it seems that David suspected that Joab would not remain loyal to Solomon. His loyalty was not with God's king. Now, friends, we we read in the Bible about Joab's many misdeeds, and, and we may wonder, I wonder, why didn't David deal with them himself? Why didn't David... Do this himself. I don't know. Was it cowardice on David's part? Was it maybe a lingering sense of guilt? You know, David also committed murder and shed innocent blood. Was was he feeling guilty? Was David struggling with conflicted feelings of loyalty because this man had stuck with him when so many others had left? He was kind of like a friend. We can't say for sure why David didn't deal with Joab directly, why he left it to his son. In the final analysis, however, one thing seems fairly clear. David's issue with Joab was not personal. 
It's not personal. This is a matter of national security. To leave Joab alive is to transgress the justice of God's law. It is to bring blood guilt upon the Davidic monarchy. It is to put the whole kingdom at risk of civil war. And David wasn't willing to do that. Well, there's another guy that David considers to be a threat. He's this man, Shimei. There's a good name for your your sons. Shimei. Um, Shimei, we we meet in the book of 2 Samuel. He is a villain. He's, He's a villain. He... He, he shows up at the time when Absalom attempted his revolution and he's driving David out of the city. And Shimei was a Benjamite. He was a supporter of King Saul. He hated the fact that David had become king in the place of Saul's sons. And when David is being driven by, from his own palace by his own flesh and blood, Shimei shows up and he pelts them with stones. He's throwing rocks at David. And he's hurling curses and insults upon David and his men. He cursed. He insulted God's anointed king. In so doing, he cursed and insulted the Lord. Because an attack on the king is an attack on God. That's what we need to understand here. When you attack God's anointed, you attack God's kingdom. And although David later pardoned Shimei, made an oath that he wouldn't put him to death, and look it up for yourself, it says, I won't do it today. This day, he never says, I'll never do it. He says, this day, I won't do it. David recognizes Shimei is a threat to the security of the nation. He knew knew that Shimei's feigned repentance was not sincere. He remained loyal to Solomon's enemies. And so while David keeps the oath that he made not to put Shimei to death, he knew that Solomon was under no such oath. And he counseled Solomon, deal with this guy. Now, once again, it's tempting here to see the whole episode as personal retaliation, but I think it's best to give David the benefit of the doubt. Shimei was a real threat to the nation of Israel. He was a threat to the unity of the kingdom, and he needed to be dealt with. In his final charge, David counsels Solomon, deal swiftly, deal shrewdly with dangerous men like this. But notice, he also counsels his son, remember kindness and reward those who supported the family during a time of trouble. And at the head of the list here of men to remember and reward was Barzillai, the Gileadite. This was a wealthy benefactor. He'd supported David's household during their flight from Absalom. He had helped to escort King David and his family back into the city after the revolution failed. And so Barzillai remained loyal to David at great risk to himself and his family. And David wants to make sure that his loyal friend is treated properly. That Solomon gives him a proper pension. That Solomon takes care of his family in the same way he had taken care of Solomon's family. And so here at the end of his life and reign, we see David executing the duties of a good and godly magistrate. What does a good and godly magistrate do? They punish evil and they reward righteousness, right? That's the biblical definition. Punishing evil, rewarding righteousness. As the king of Israel, David had a solemn responsibility to uphold the moral law. Although we may wonder why he waited so long in the case of these men, the main point of this whole episode and chapter is that justice was ultimately served. Justice was ultimately served. 
An attack on God's anointed was an attack on God's kingdom. David understood justice must be served against God's enemies and that the execution of this justice is the responsibility of the king when it comes to matters of public justice. And so this was not uncontrolled rampage of vengeance. David is faithfully fulfilling the duties of a king. He's, he's seeing to it that the nation is secure under the leadership of his son. Well, the remainder of the chapter tells us about the death of David, the consolidation of Solomon's reign. In obedience to his father's instruction, Solomon takes action against these enemies along with several others that David does not mention. Joab, as we learn, was executed for his crimes. He was replaced as the commander of the army. Shimei, on the other hand, was not immediately put to death, but he was put under house arrest in such a way that he could not collaborate with the remaining loyalists to King Saul. That was the point of the house arrest. This is an act of mercy and clemency on Solomon's part, extended to Shimei, but when Shimei acts like a fool, and he breaks the condition of his house arrest and parole, and he leaves the city, Solomon acts. Solomon brings justice. He puts David's old enemy to death. In addition to these men, we discover Solomon removed Abiathar from his role as priest, and doing so fulfilled a prophecy against Eli and his evil household. Abiathar, as we know, conspired with Joab and with Adonijah, as such he was no longer qualified to serve as a priest. And finally, we learn in this chapter about the fate of Adonijah, Solomon's older brother, who had already tried once to rebel. Now Solomon could have immediately and rightfully killed his brother Adonijah for treason. Instead, we learn in the last chapter, Solomon extends mercy. It's his first act as the king. He extends mercy to his brother. He allows him to live. And now we come to chapter 2. We discover that Adonijah ain't the smartest. All right? He ain't the sharpest knife in the drawer. He had not abandoned his political power play. He had another trick up his sleeve. Adonijah and his ambition still believed that he had a rightful claim to the throne and he wanted to bolster that claim by marrying this woman, Abishag. Who is Abishag? This is the young lady that that David married but never had sexual relations with her. It was the youngest member of David's harem of wives. Now, from a very superficial perspective, this uh, story of Adonijah asking for Abishag's hand in marriage, wow, isn't this romantic? Isn't this wonderful, this love story? And uh, it seems that Bathsheba fell for it. She was taken in by it. And she brings a request to Solomon, and Solomon says, Mom, I'm not going to refuse you. And as soon as he hears what it is, he says, Mom, are you serious? Why don't you just ask for the kingdom? (laughs) Solomon knows this is a grab for power. This is not innocent romance. This is an underhanded attempt on Adonijah's part to position himself as David's rightful successor. And so at this foolish request, Adonijah sealed his fate. He was rightfully executed by the king. The Bible, by the way, is not against capital punishment. That's a discussion for another day. But just understand that. The Bible is not against capital punishment. God has given the state the sword. 
From our modern perspective, the events transpiring here in 1 Kings 2 seem bloody and brutal. In actual fact, this is a description of the justice of God. That's what this chapter is. It's the king's justice. Furthermore, I'm convinced this chapter is not a black mark on David's reputation. It provides us with a sobering reminder of God's justice against rebels. The biblical truth, the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. When you attack God's king, you attack God's kingdom. And all of the enemies dealt with in this chapter, these are men who foolishly, wickedly attempted to overthrow the purposes of God. These guys thought they were smarter than God. They thought they knew better than him. And in their own scheming against the authority of David and Solomon, they had really been scheming and plotting against the Lord. On the one hand, this chapter reminds us of the important role of civil authority. God has entrusted the civil government with the responsibility of punishing evil and rewarding righteousness. That is the main biblical responsibility of a government. They are responsible with matters of public justice, criminal justice, punishing evil, rewarding righteousness. This, of course, is not merely a principle of the Old Covenant. Paul restates it in Romans 13. Paul says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist incur judgment. Here it is. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do good, and you will receive his approval. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. It's the same principle outlined in the New Covenant, the epistle of Paul. And so we're reminded in this chapter about the responsibility of civil authority. God entrusts them the duty of enforcing public justice, punishing evil, rewarding good. But beyond the mere institution of civil government, this passage reminds us of God's supreme government. Beyond civil government, this chapter is about God's supreme government over all things in the universe. What's under God's portfolio? Everything. (laughs) Everything. He is the supreme governor. He, in fact, has appointed a day upon which he will execute his ultimate justice upon the earth. There is a day coming. We don't know when, but it is coming when every single one of us will be summoned to stand before the judgment bench of this king and a final verdict will be handed down. You understand, friends, that there are many people in our world today who who are very naive when it comes to God. (laughs) Very naive. And they wrongly think, and they have somehow convinced themselves that God will never deal with sin. The day of reckoning for my sin will will never arrive. I'm such a good guy. How could God possibly deal with my sin? How could he possibly deal with my sin? I've done all these great things. And some of them assume that God has forgotten about the evil that they've done in the past. Some people assume that if enough time passes, all the fences are just forgotten. You know, I was thinking this week about some of those Nazi war criminals who committed horrendous atrocities in the war And then we're brought to justice in their 90s. And we see these 90-year-old people standing trial. And there's a tendency for us sometimes to almost feel sorry for them. They committed atrocities. 
they're as guilty on, on the day of their 95th birthday as they were in the day that they committed it. People convince themselves that if enough time passes, my sin will go away. My sin will become less offensive to God. and He'll forget about it. Or maybe people convince themselves, well, you know, God could have brought me to justice right away for the things that I've done, but because he didn't do it right away, he's not going to do it at all. If he was going to do it, he would have done it already, but he must have gotten over it. Well, friends, the story before us today in 1 Kings 2 reminds us God is a God of perfect justice. His memory is perfect. He does not forget about our sin. He does not sweep our sin under the rug. His justice ultimately prevails. If Joab thought that David had overlooked his acts of murder and treason, he was wrong. If Shimei thought that cursing and blaspheming the Lord's anointed one was not a serious issue, he was deluding himself. Now, for reasons that are not altogether clear, David delayed the execution of justice against these men, but in the end, the sword of of justice came down. And friends, one day, when King Jesus returns to this earth, justice will be done. Don't be naive. Justice will be done. Everything that has been done wrong will be made right. The Bible tells us on that great and terrible day, every person who has ever lived will be raised from their grave. He will go so far as to raise you from your grave to stand before him at his tribunal. You will be presented before the judgment throne of God to receive justice for what has been done. And hear this, according to the Bible, there are only two ways that God's justice will be satisfied. There are only two ways. If on the one hand you have bowed the knee to King Jesus and received him as Savior and Lord, the Bible assures you God's justice has already been satisfied. That on the cross of Calvary long ago, the wrath that you and I deserved as Christian believers was poured out upon the King himself. And that he suffered and died on the cross in your place and in my place for our sins. As Paul said it it in Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, you're a Christian, you belong to him by grace alone through faith alone, you have something to give thanks for today. You have something to thank him for because your sins are forgiven totally forgiven. You have been pardoned. Divine justice against you has already been satisfied. It was satisfied long ago at the cross. Jesus paid it all. This is good news. This is the gospel. Jesus paid the penalty for the believer's sin so that you and I who believe in him would not have to pay the penalty ourselves. But if you're here this morning and you have not bowed your knee to King Jesus, you have not submitted to him as Savior and Lord, you need to be aware of something very important today. That justice against your sin will be satisfied differently. If you refuse 
to bow your knee before King Jesus, God will satisfy the demands of His holy justice by sending you into an eternal hell from which there is no escape. If your sins are not paid by Jesus Christ on the cross, you will pay for them forever in the lake of fire. That is what the Bible teaches. You say, I don't like that. doesn't matter what you think. That's the way it is. There are two options. Only two options. Either God's justice will be satisfied through the finished work of His Son, or else it will be satisfied through eternal punishment in the lake of fire. But as we close our time in the Word this morning, hear this and hear it well. There is good news for every person in this room today. If your heart is still beating, if your lungs are still pumping, there's good news for you today. It's not too late. Whether you've heard the gospel and have ignored it or rejected, whether you are hearing the gospel for the first time today, understand this, there is room at the cross for you. There's room for you. And the invitation stands open to you today, friend. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Heed today the warnings of God's holy word and the promise of the King's justice which will one day be poured out upon this world and all of its inhabitants. Heed the warning for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? We will not escape. Flee from the wrath to come. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith and be saved.